Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. We've had a number of people talking about Bob Dylan. As regular listeners know, I'm a big Dylan fan. And this week, we would like to welcome Keith Miles, who is co-author with Jackie Lees of Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales. Keith, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Keith, you're not like a professional music critic or even a semi-professional Dylanologist. What led you to write this book? Well, uh, with my co-author, Jackie Lees, we were teenage Dylan fans. But when we met at university in 1979, uh, we didn't we didn't confess to being Dylan fans. So we didn't we didn't know we were um, fans of Bob Dylan until much, much later. And then in the last few years, we decided to do a pilgrimage of all of the wonderful spots that Dylan has played, uh, not just played, but, you know, spots like the Savoy Steps where Subterranean Homesick Blues was um, recorded. And we decided to go around a lot of these wonderful uh, parts of music history in London. And we found that they weren't recognised. There was... There were no plaques on the wall. There was. We went to the Troubadour Club where Dylan first played in 1962, and there was no sign that Dylan had played there. Also, Jimi Hendrix played there. Paul Simon played there. But we went to this wonderful uh, living museum of a club, and there were pictures of the Beatles on the wall. So we we talked to the owners, who actually were American, and said, "Look, we'd like to recognise." Bob Dylan and his part in in London music history and they allowed us to open and we co-curate the the Dylan room at the Troubadour and out of that work and various other projects we had on we basically decided to put it all in a book uh, so people could use it as a guide and a history read the stories I, I, I have so many Bob Dylan books. I have a whole library of Bob Dylan books, and apparently they come out at the rate of about 15, 16 a year plus. <laughs> they and, do, yeah. Um, and that's that's a bad year. That's a bad year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but none of them were terribly much fun. And, you know, and Bob Dylan is a lot of fun as well. And the story is great. The music history is great. You know, I've, I've very good friends. Michael Gray is a, is, a, is a wonderful friend of mine. And he writes the most beautiful analytical books about Dylan. But that's all done. You know, people have written those and they are wonderful. But we wanted... First of all, that that fun guide and the 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 stories about the people and the places to come across in the book. Um, but also, when you look through the library of Dylan books, particularly that ninety that very short period of time in late nineteen sixty two, early sixty three, where Dylan first came out of North America and came over to London, which was a pretty critical time for him and his career. But it's it's glossed over in most biographies it's 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 a paragraph at most in in a lot of them and also people like robert shelton uh had 
got the wrong pubs and got the wrong history, you know, and we wanted as Londoners to put that right. I want to go back to something you just mentioned, because you said there were no plaques about all these places. People who aren't in the UK don't know about the blue plaques, that you find blue plaques commemorating things. In the US, you see signs that George Washington slept here all over the country, well, the east coast of the country. In the UK, you have these historical signs. And I, I actually happen to have a photo in my photos library that I shot in a town near me a couple years ago. The Bell Inn was visited by the author J.R.R. Tolkien. It has been attributed as the inspiration for the Inn of the Prancing Pony, which features in The Lord of the Rings. Now, that wasn't an official blue pack. That was just put up by a bunch of Tolkien fans. But musically, for example, here's one in Manchester in Didsbury. Factory Records was founded here in 1978. So these plaques, they commemorate famous people, but they also commemorate you know, events that might have occurred. Yeah, and we looked, one of the projects we had before the book was looking at putting a plaque up where um, Bob records Subterranean Homesick Blues. The video for Subterranean Homesick Blues. Yeah, essentially yeah. The, the first music video, um, and I, and I, a one, still a wonderful video, still cool, still iconic, um, and so many people assumed it was in New York because you've got that scaffolding on the building you've got ginsburg at one side it looks very new york but in fact it's at the back of the savoy hotel um, and we've got a chapter on that in the book and jackie and i had looked at putting a plaque up there um but one side is owned by the and it's still exactly the same you still stand in that very same spot and and people occasionally do take their placards to video themselves there but not enough people <laughs> and we'd look yeah, well, it, it needs to be more popular so it's like the crosswalk by abbey road studio exactly exactly we would we would like to have queues of tourists waiting their turn with their back <laughs> uh, to stand where and, and you'll have a little booth there to sell your book yeah no absolutely <laughs> we would be there um but it's you know on one side is the savoy hotel and they're not interested in putting a plaque up and the other side we found out was the um chapel of the savoy which is owned by the queen um and we did send a nice email to the flight lieutenant who runs it and he said her majesty probably wasn't going to go for it to be honest um so, i think uh, you should send a letter to the queen an actual paper letter she might be a dylan fan you never know she uh, she probably get someone to open it and read it for her yeah and uh, you know she she could well be a dylan fan you never know uh, prince charles probably is yeah i would imagine i want to start in the beginning of the book because two days ago there was an a book review in the guardian and i did not know about this it's it opens with on boxing day 1962 it began to snow and didn't stop for the next 10 weeks britain had entered its own little ice age and that's how you open the book as well you say dylan first came to london in the freezing December of 1962. Snow blanketed the capital from December to February 63, and many icebergs were seen on the River Thames. Yeah, it was it was the coldest winter for centuries when, when Bob Bob tends to arrive in cities when it's freezing cold and there's snow <laughs> on the ground. And, and he came... It's true, um, when he got to New York, it was the exactly same, wasn't Exactly the it? same, exactly the same. And, and he essentially, he was brought over because... Um, Philip Savile had seen him play in Greenwich Village and for some really wonderful but bizarre reason had thought that Bob Dylan could act in a BBC play. 
so they they got him over. They they gave him plenty of money. They put him in the Mayfair Hotel, which is reasonably swanky. Um, and he got it obviously promptly got himself thrown out. So he did exactly what he did in New York, which is sofa surf. And that that really helps Bob Dylan as that musical magpie. He loves to stay with musicians and, and learn from musicians. And he did he pretty much did the same thing as he'd, he'd done in New York. Um, but it was freezing. You know, he was he was a 21 year old American in his cowboy boots and he wasn't ready for a British winter. Um, I'm not sure about that. He grew up in Minnesota. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. We have a particularly particularly nasty vein of, of snow over here. And, uh, um, and, you know, at one point, you know, he was a starving folk artist. So, you know, he would be on the, on the sofa with other starving folk artists over here. So. Well, so it's interesting because I mentioned this to my partner. My partner was born in April 1962. And she said that she remembers her mother saying how bad that winter was. And she was telling me they didn't have any central heating in the house. They just had this, like, one sort of heating element higher up in the living room and they had to get paraffin heaters and that reminds me of the first time i went to london which was 1982 and you had to put coins in the heaters and i'm thinking that if it's not your winter that was bad it's your heating that was bad <laughs> it was it's, it's both it's both we know for a for a nation that has so many different kind of seasons we're never ready for any of them that's the trouble you know it's to, it's it's unpleasantly hot here because we don't have any air conditioning in the summer and then in the winter we're just not ready for it and you know and i think bob arrived at a place where you know as i say it was a good lively folk scene but you know he stayed with people who befriended him here like martin carthy who was a wonderful wonderful supporter but they were you know they were not ready for it and dylan and and martin carthy particularly talks about chopping up a piano uh for firewood you know and it was it was as uh, that kind of survivalist attitude that they had here so was dylan accepted quickly he'd already had one record released but it was mostly covers and only two original songs had that record reached the uk by the time he got here the the record and his reputation had come before him obviously the record didn't sell very many copies at all um no, but no. his reputation had got here and martin carthy uh when bob dylan turned up at the king and queen pub where there was a, a lively um uh folk club going on and martin was playing in the thames side four he recognized dylan immediately from a cover of sing out magazine which he'd been on. So he'd, he'd created his own waves in Greenwich Village enough that the folk scene people that were really, you know, people like Martin Carthy just knew his stuff, so he would recognise him. Um, and others like Anthea Joseph, um, who was the, uh, the the manager at the Troubadour Club, you know, she she they knew of this guy. You know, he'd already become, in a sh fairly short space of time, pretty well known on the folk scene over there. And that had permeated here. But he came in from a folk scene really in Greenwich Village where people were able to do what they want, you know, play in whatever way they wanted and whatever uh, origination. But he came to a folk scene over here in, in London 
that was pretty bedded down with some bizarre rules about who could sing what kind of thing and um, what instrument you could have with it. And, you know, and I think Dylan just plowed straight in, you know, he's this brash american who's gonna sing what he wants to sing wherever he comes from let me quote from your book because i found that quite interesting you say factions had started to appear each holding strong opinions not just about which songs were legitimate to sing but the way in which they should be sung some decreed that all folk songs should be sung unaccompanied frowning upon the use of musical instruments others considered that only songs from the british isles were acceptable The policy at the Influential Singers Club was that songs should be from the singer's own heritage or region of birth. Now, it's true that in New York and Greenwich Village, you had some of that fundamentalism, but not as rigid as this. No, it was nothing, nothing like as as, as rigid as the rules we had here. And and they would they would forever making up new rules. And, and, you know, you and McCall and others were really prescribing what people could do. And you know that 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 wasn't healthy but there was a lot of conflict within the 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 folk scene you know and as much as dylan made great friends here uh, such as martin carthy you know and i think someone like martin carthy sees in dylan something a little bit extra (laughs) you know someone that yeah he can nick your melody and he could take that but he's going to make it into something even better um, you know, and, and you look at something like, uh, I think Martin Carley talks about, you know, hearing the melody of, of Lord Randall, an old English folk ballad, you know, which is about poison eels and maidens in distress and all this sort of thing <laughs> and, and, and turning into hard rains are going to fall which is a, a, a social commentary for our time, you know, and, you know, he saw that Dylan was, was going to take things to a, an, another level. Um, and, but others didn't, you know, you McCall and, and a fair few of the others thought he was, he was pretty brash American and how can he bowl in here and, and sing our songs? So you mentioned briefly that Dylan came over to perform in a drama for the BBC. So first, it's worth pointing out that your book is not chronological, but it takes each location and then looks at them at the time that Dylan was there. So this is in the chapter about the Mayfair. What was the whole deal with Dylan being in this play where, what did he eventually say one line at the end of it, sang a couple of songs, and he spoke just one line? Well, I don't know. I'll have to go home and think about it, was what he said. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a bizarre thing that, the, you know, the, the director, Philip Savile, had seen him in a, a, a singing a club in, in Greenwich Village and decided that he was going to be the star actor of his BBC play. And I don't know where on earth he got that from. Um, you know, Dylan must have looked good and, and, and had a presence about him. Um, but to bring him over and pay him a, a decent amount of money and, and put him in a hotel and do all this um you know on that kind of whim was you know as someone has said to me the bbc had money to burn in those days they would just do all sorts of vanity projects for the for the directors and producers but you know they got him here and they realized pretty soon that dylan couldn't act and also you know dylan come over and hadn't said i can't act do you really want me to be the main lead in this <laughs> you know so what they ended up having spent a fortune on dylan is had to get david warner an actual actor in so they had to hire someone else in and this play which is <laughs> essentially in in um 
sort of a part of block of apartments as you'd have, but but sort of real bedsit land. So they'd have this strange character that lived in one of the rooms that would suddenly every so often come in and sing a song and go out again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, and the BBC, I mean, it went out in early '63, and the 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 awful thing is that. Uh, um, you know, we have some audio of that because obviously people couldn't record from the telly. So you'd put your cassette up and record it. So there is some decent audio from that time. But the BBC then wiped the tape. But they didn't do it in 1963 where there was this unknown actor. They waited till 1969 was he, when he was a very established star and then wiped it. You know, in the year that... that, that uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix here is, is riding high in the charts with All Along the Watchtower. Someone at the BBC saw a tape with Bob Dylan in and thought, nah, we're not going to want that, <laughs> and wiped it, which is a, is a tragedy. But. So let's move ahead to Royal Albert Hall, because that's one of the places where, that's one of the, the iconic places for Dylan to perform. I, I love the way you mentioned that the echo in some parts of the auditorium was so bad that a joke sprang up that concerts at the Albert Hall were good value for money, because you could hear any piece played twice. <laughs> now, I, I, I have to say... I think it was, was it Bournemouth was the last time I saw Dylan, and you could hear things played twice. It was one of these cavernous halls. It's not really designed for concerts. And I've been to plenty of concerts and plenty of places where you could hear things played twice. I've never been to Royal Albert Hall, but when you see the pictures, it is one of these massive things. It really was not designed for acoustics. But this is something we know a lot about because of the D.A. Pennebacher's footage and, and the outtakes. And in the last... Version. I'm thinking Don't Look Back, there was a sort of director's cut maybe 15 years ago that had some full songs, recordings as well. So this is probably the, the one period that we know the best from Dylan's performing of that time, at least on film. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it's the, the Dylan that most people know immediately, that image of the, the, with the shades and, and that rock, rock and roll star sort of time. And the, the, the thing is, um, Dylan had played his first real concert here in 1964 at the Royal Festival Hall, which is a much better uh, acoustic venue. And that's, that was a one, that's kind of almost the pinnacle of acoustic solo Dylan in 1964. And you see, you look down the program by that time, which is between freewheeling and the times are changing you know how much in in basically a year and a bit dylan has come on and, and written so much if he if he'd stopped playing in on the 17th of may 1964 he'd still be one of the greatest songwriters that has ever <laughs> has ever come come out and you know we we are lucky that that you know he he was so prodigious um, and you look at the program for that festival hall gig, and there's a huge number of, of, of almost a greatest hits. And it says at the bottom, and various other songs. Now, one of those various other songs was Mr. Tambourine Man, which was debuted there. Um, and, you know, then he came back, as you say, in uh, uh, for that tour, which was the, well, it was, it was half electric, really. You know, he came back to the Royal Albert Hall. It was really... In lots of ways, it was it was wrong um, for the acoustics, but it was kind of right for what Dylan was trying to do, because the '65 tour was the same Dylan again, but '66 
when he'd come back there, he was basically splitting it in half. So the, the first half of the performance was an acoustic solo gig and the, the, you know, everything was fine and people could hear it. And then essentially he would come back in the second half of the program and he would, there would be this band, you know, the, the, the porks who then became the crackers who then became the band. And, you know, suddenly everything was cranked up to 11 and Dylan would go into what I think is a the great, probably one of the first punk numbers, Tell Me Mama. And, you know, the, it would sound awful. And we talked to people that had been on this tour and quite a lot of the people that actually walked out, walked out because the sound was so appalling. You know, it wasn't a protest against Dylan suddenly becoming uh, a band after having heard the folk stuff in the first half. It was mostly because it was blimmin' awful to hear. <laughs> yeah, loud and distorted, and you couldn't make out what he was saying, yeah. No, and I think they, they played on it. I personally think that albert grossman kind of knew you know we're not going to do this gently for people we we can create a few headlines we can create a few few waves here yeah. i think it was profit from deliberate. the controversy yeah indeed and done for for that shock value as much as anything else you know grossman knew that the headlines mean business um, and this was how they'd, gave, they'd they'd set up those concerts really to do that. You know, there was no there was no gentle intro to anything. It was straight in. And, you know, as you say, the acoustics were, were bad there. You know, that that didn't help matters. So I want to move ahead to a location I never heard of before. Black Bush, a disused Air Force base. 200,000 people came to hear Bob Dylan and others. Uh, let's see, Eric Clapton, Joan Armatrading, and Camberley, that's the town local hero, Graham Parker and the Rumor. Very cool. W why was this weird place used for a concert like this? Well, after the 66 tour, obviously, uh, Dylan took himself out of uh, uh, the, the front line, if you like, and... Um, although you had the Rolling Thunder, seventy-four tour, lots of other things, he didn't he didn't venture out um, for twelve years. Other than obviously his uh, um, uh, small Sir John to uh, the Isle of Wight, you know, on mainland Britain as such, you know, we had we didn't see him for twelve years. And when he arrived. Uh, in 1978, there was kind of a Dylan mania. I I was a teenage Dylan fan, uh, sleeping on the streets of Hammersmith to get tickets with my sister. You know, the whole the whole nation were out sleeping, looking for tickets. You know, over that time, and that's you know, that's great testimony to how enduring Dylan is. You know, he'd survived punk, he survived all that change of music. And, you know, we'd had a lot of albums over here between 66 and 78. So we were ready to see Dylan. And he sold out of the Earl's Court on a number of nights. And I think Albert Grossman and, and the, the, the management team around Dylan thought, we've got to cash in on this. There's loads more tickets we could have sold. And the only place they could find, I mean, in, in the right through the seventies, London actually didn't have many big venues. 
And, you know, that's why Earl's Court, which is another huge, cavernous, awful, awful venue for uh, for concerts, was used by every band, really. Um, but they decided, look, we've got to cash in. We've got to find somewhere we we can, you know, that Dylan can play. And the only place they could find was a disused aerodrome at Camberley in Surrey called Blackbush, which was just a piece of land. There was nothing there. And, and you know, they put on a, a festival called the Picnic in the Park, euphemistically called the Picnic in the Park, which was, you know, a, a stage, a lot of land, no real infrastructure, um, you know, and very few trains in and out. So almost everyone you ever talked to that was at Blackbush stayed the night um, because they couldn't get home. Um but it was it was wonderful, but shambolic. And unfortunately, we don't have again any. You know, this is 1978, and we don't have any video of that at all, which is extraordinary. You do say, however, that at three hours and five minutes, Dylan's performance at Blackbush was his longest ever continuous appearance on stage. Yeah, I mean, he, it was a gr- it was a fantastic performance. Anyone that could, you know, that was there, could he? It was it was. Um, uh, a curious egg of a performance but it was wonderful there was you know um, and the fact you've got 200,000 people there you know there are great eyewitness testimonies to people that um, lost their virginity in the crowd and and all sorts of stuff it was it was there were no there were no (laughs) rules on this there was no structure there was no you know anything goes and and it was a a strange strange festival Um, you know the the actually put together in a a matter of of, you know a few days really um but they did it and it was wonderful there's some audio there's there's um audio of him playing senor um and there's few a few clips but but nothing um so you know and and as you say the local the local lad graham parker was allowed to play there and his, the graham parker and rumor were were and are a wonderful band and um i saw them live around that time yeah in new york they were great they were fantastic yeah. live you know yep. um and yeah the, you know this this was this was a, a wonderful festival to have there and you know it really did um reinforce dylan's um sort of presence for, for london fans really so speaking of festivals i only found out recently that dylan once performed about three miles from where i live so I'm just south of Stratford-upon-Avon, and there was something called the Phoenix Festival in the 1990s on an old, another old air base just a few miles south of me, and he performed there in 1995. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 does, he does get around. He does a lot. Um, <laughs> and we, you know, he, you know, we, I, Jackie, my co-author, and I, like, like many, saw him at Hyde Park um, not long ago, and... You know, the fact that nearly 80, you know, he's performing and smiling and enjoying it. Um, you know, I, you, you got to hope that the never ending tour is just having a small, small rest before it continues on. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I've seen him twice in the past few years since I've been in the UK and both times, you know, particularly doing the standards, he's really enjoying himself. Yeah, no, you can tell he's a little stiff walking around on stage, you know, but, other than that, he's got the musicianship that's still there. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think, it, you know, the Hyde Park one, you know, they had it on. Um, he doesn't normally allow big screens to, to, to show everything, but he did that. And you could see he was actually really enjoying himself. And that that's that's 
as I say, at nearly 80, that's pretty wonderful that he can do that. But then, you know, rough and rowdy ways comes out and you think, God, yeah, there's a guy who really loves music. <laughs> you know, give him a bunch of wonderful musicians around him and, you know, and he will has always delve into music history. You know, that, that this is really the, the heart and soul of Dylan. And it's an infectious love, really, that I think comes through. So the last location I want to talk about, I find this fascinating, the video that was shot in Camden Town. I'll put a link in the show notes to the video on Apple Music. You can't find this on YouTube for free. You have to be a YouTube premium subscriber. Dylan's very good about controlling his videos. It's a video for Blood in My Eyes from the World Gone Wrong album, which is arguably the best Dylan album of the 90s, probably. And it's him walking around. So it's a combination of him sitting in a cafe, mouthing the lyrics, and then walking around with a top hat and an umbrella and shaking hands and signing autographs and people taking photos. This was totally improvised, and yet there's something sort of Dylan-esque about it, isn't there? Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. I think it's it's one of his best music videos. There, are the, again, there's there's a, a real mixed bag of Dylan music videos, I have to say. Um, but I love. I mean, well gone wrong. I think is again. That's him and his love of music coming through. You know, he's he's such a, a music historian, and I, I it's one of my favourite albums. Well, gone wrong, I have to say. You know, even without the London connection, but you know, the fact he came over to see Dave Stewart, who who was in the Arrhythmics and was a music producer at the time, and they were going to work on things again, as quite often happens with Dylan, that, that came to to nothing. But, um, you know, Dave Stewart was in charge of doing the, the video. And it's, it's a wonderful walkabout. The, the amazing thing is, you know, 1993, you've got a lot of people coming up and, and shaking his hand and getting an autograph. But you've got just as many people who have no idea who this guy is in a top hat and walking past him. And, um, you know, we we love the fact, you know, this is, this is Camden High Street. Um, you can still walk along that that sort of track where where he he filmed the video um unfortunately the cafe where he's seen sitting and 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 singing in the in the video and where the cover from the album world gone wrong comes from um unfortunately that was a, a lovely cafe called fluke's cradle but is now an all-you-can-eat chinese restaurant so um not not quite as romantic progress um yeah well <laughs> if you like you know all you need if you like you all you need you can eat chinese then i guess it's progress but, um <laughs> it was a lovely venue and it was great and and you know the fact you can see in the book there are the, the stories of the paintings behind him um and that particular um uh particular story and you know it was a it was a, an unknown photographer who was bought in to take some stills who then ended up on the front cover of world gone wrong and again i think it's one of his best cover pictures i think it's just wonderful yeah and that that to me is the cool latter-day dylan really there is always to me is the world gone wrong dylan yeah, but that's 20 years ago, and there's been so much since then. You think of, oh, you know... Oh, don't say that! But it's, so no, but it's true. You think of, like, like, time out of mind, and you think of, 
you know what what he's just done ooh, the what is it five rec five records worth of covers and and the new album this year and there's the last year sorry i'm i'm still in 2020 i still write 2020 on my checks you do say something though which it you say 1993 this is pretty much the closing of your book 1993 is not generally seen as a vintage dylan year and maybe not even in the top 10 years of a very long career but the supper club I mean, that's 1993. That's some of the finest live recordings, bootlegs, that we have. Yeah, no, that's true. But, uh, you know, it's like when you're trying to, you know, ever ever list a, a top 10 Dylan albums or a top 10 anything. It's just the, the competition's so hard there. You know, we, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, you know, there are, there are so many vintage periods of Dylan, really. And, um, yeah, you know, I, yes, I guess if you, if you include the supper club and other things, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad time. Yeah, there's one location you left out though, and this particularly stood out to me because you have a quote on the cover of the book by Connor McPherson, who says that it's a must-have for Dylan enthusiasts and lovers of London. Connor McPherson, who wrote the girl from the North Country that played at the Old Vic. Why don't you mention the Old Vic? I know Dylan. Apparently, Dylan did go there to see the show once, but that is another Dylan location because of that play. Yeah, no, I, I, it's a wonderful quote from Connor, and we, we're so pleased he, he did that for us. Um, I saw it four times at, at three different locations. It's just, and and the um, Dylan room at the the Troubadour, uh, the one of the the leads from the West End play and one of the leads from Broadway did a video there and they sang at the the troubadour and they came to visit the dylan room it's wonderful i was i was outvoted by uh on on the the caucus of co-author and publisher on what we could put in Uh, several things were left out i wanted to do for example uh, and again because it was seen as you know it's slightly one step removed from dylan i agree with you it's a dylan location i have to say um i was I was outvoted on, for example, the Olympic Studios at Barnes, which is where um, Jimi Hendrix recorded all along the Watchtower. You know, I, to me, that's still a Dylan location. And also, it's a wonderful place I'd like people to go, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I kind of was outvoted on space on some of these. I, I was fortunate enough to see Girl from the North Country once, the original production. I had front row center seats. And it was really wonderful. Ah, With the original, I, I defy anyone not to cry when Sheila Atim sings "Tight Connection." I absolutely defy you're not. Your blood doesn't run warm if you don't cry at that. Okay, we're running out of time. This has been really long. There's there's a lot to read in the book. Bob Dylan in London: Troubadour Tales by Jackie Lee's and Keith Miles. Keith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you much, very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. As usual, we want to say thank you to our Patreon patrons. You know, we cover our podcasting costs with your help, and it really makes it more fun for us to do and less of a chore, and that's great for everybody. So you can help, too. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. Now we're going to tell you about our next track picks. Okay, my next track this week is not Dylan, but... To me, it's not that far off. It's a live recording by Hot Tuna from July 27, 2001 at the Kent Community House in Kent, Connecticut. Why that particular show? Why that particular date? 
It's because Yorma Kalkinen and Hot Tuna were very anti-taping back in the day, unlike the Grateful Dead, that were more than happy for people to trade tapes. So you don't really have a lot of good quality tapes of them in the 70s and the 80s. In recent times, they've started releasing some that they've recorded themselves, and they're for, for a while, they're only available for sale. Now they're available on the streaming services. They're sort of drip-feeding releases over time, and they're obviously picking the good ones rather than letting people just trade whatever they have. Uh, this one just came up as a new release in Apple Music, and I put it on yesterday, and it's a wonderful recording. So Hot Tuna Live is essentially... Yorma Kalkinen on guitar and Jack Cassidy on bass. Sometimes he has a bigger band with a drummer and maybe a violinist, but this is just the two of them. It's got a lot of classic songs, Death Don't Have No Mercy, Embryonic Journey, 99-Year Blues, Hesitation Blues. It's got all the really classic songs that you know if you knew Hot Tuna in the 1970s. Yorma Kalkinen's one of the artists I saw the most often back in the day when I was in New York. I saw him a few times at the Palladium. I went to Philadelphia in November 1978 once to see him because a friend of a friend went to the University of Pennsylvania. And then I used to see him at the Lone Star Cafe in New York, this little long, narrow cafe on a corner of Fifth Avenue right near Washington Square Park where you would get, like, on one night you'd get Yorma Kalkinen. The next night you'd get, like, James White and the Blacks. The next night, you'd get some jazz combo. Wonderful place, really intimate. It was his balcony where you could get up that was pretty much the front of the stage. So you're looking almost directly down on the performance, and I loved it. So anyway, I, there are a I, lot— I'm sorry to interrupt, but I got to ask. Have you seen any of the Fur Peace Ranch quarantine concerts? Yes. In fact, I'll link to that in the show notes. He's been doing quarantine concerts since the beginning of the quarantine. I think he's up to 30 or 40. They're extremely well-produced. He plays the music, tells some stories, and Doug is just putting on his Yorma Kalkinen fur piece COVID mask. If you know Yorma, he's got a gold front tooth, and the mask has a face with a gold front tooth. Doug, you do have to put a picture of that, or I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can order your own fur piece ranch COVID mask. So anyway, this is a Hot Tuna July 27, 2001, great acoustic set. Doug, what have you got? I have got the Complete Trio Collection, which is a uh, compilation of uh, music that Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt recorded for two albums, Trio and Trio 2. And this particular collection includes a lot of uh, stuff that they didn't use on those two records. Now, perhaps you didn't know about this, but in 1987, Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt put out this record. They've been working for years trying to get together to perform uh, together on one album. They had done stuff for each other on each other's albums, but because they worked for different record companies and had different schedules and that sort of thing, it took them quite a bit of time to get together. So in 87, this album comes out. It's absolutely delightful, as you might imagine. It had several country radio hits on it. Uh, they do a bunch of of music uh, that runs the gamut from like old timey into classic country into modern country and they do a Phil Spector song and it was really a great record. Seven years later they recorded uh, a follow-up to it called Trio 2 but again as Robert Fripp would say because of the delay by dinosaurs the second Trio album didn't come out until 1999. It was kind of low-key. I don't remember there being any radio promotion for it or uh, any heavy TV or anything like that or any any videos, but uh, I, I did hear some of it, and it's just as good as the first album. The great thing about these recordings is that it's not just their voices, which are absolutely angelic. 
there are some tremendous musicians on on these recordings. Uh, Bill Payne, uh, Albert Lee, uh, Russ Kunkel, and and that whole West Coast crew. Uh, just a lot of great musicians on it. If you ever get a chance, don't deny yourself the splendor that is Linda Ronstadt, Dolly Parton, and Emmylou Harris singing as trio. And check out the complete trio collection, which is my next track. This was episode number 203 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, and it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.